Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and coming to us as always from Southampton, England, our very own professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, it's good to talk to you again. Yeah, we haven't chatted in a while, so having a pretty good summer. It's been, went off to Wales for a bit. It's holidayed a bit in Wales. What, 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 uh, what is Wales like? How would you, what would you, what would you describe someone who has never been to Wales like me or really doesn't know much about Wales other than Gareth Bale is from there? Um, how would you describe, what, how would you describe Wales? Uh, it's like Appalachia. It's very rolling hills, a lot of coal, um, a lot of coal mines, a lot of sheep. It's very wet. I only figured this out afterwards, but for the UK, North Wales, where we went, gets the most rain. So it's probably not the best summer spot, but still a lot of cool things to do there. So that was a good, good trip. Are we talking about like good Appalachia, like the Smoky Mountains National Park, or are we talking like Eastern, Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia? <laughs> No, it's really scenic. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of these very old villages, like you know, two, three hundred year old villages that are in decline because the coal industry is in decline, but still kind of like really kind of pretty old stone, like stone houses and stuff. Um, it's got loads of it's kind of turning itself into like an eco tourism place because it's got like loads of like mountain biking trails and hiking trails and it's got the Snowdonia which is like the national park for Wales and it's got Mount Snowdon which is one it's I mean by North American standards British mountains aren't that high but it's still still a fairly high peak there um, kind of like a good hiking there and then the coast is pretty cool like there's these old Britain's got a load of these old Victorian um, like resort towns, uh, Brighton's probably the most famous, but there's a ton and they're just kind of like very old, like, like Victorian architecture on the ocean front. And then like a lot of restaurants and things. And it's kind of where people went back in the, the 1800s or even early 20th century before British people started kind of vacationing in Europe, but it's still kind of got like an interesting kind of like, uh, it's got, I'm not, can't, there's not really a clear analogy in the U S for that, but it's kind of maybe a little bit, what was the name of that Springs in like, Eureka Springs? Did you ever go to Eureka huh. Springs in Arkansas? No, no that's hot springs. Really? Hot, hot springs. springs. Hot springs, right? Yeah. Where it's like, it was a resort back in the like, mm-hmm. early, like late 19th century, early 20th century. Yep. And it still is a resort. And like all the stuff's still there, but it's old. So it's kind of a cool place to go, but not perhaps not the hippest place to go. Did you know that Hot Springs, Arkansas is where spring training originated for for American baseball? I think you told me this once, but what was, I can't quite remember the story. Uh, The Yankees would go there because they would basically send the babe there to use the hot springs to sweat out all the alcohol from the winter. So the team would join him there and they would prepare for the season. So they would train there. Yeah, they would just join. Yeah, the babe would go to hot springs because he would use the hot springs to to sweat out all the booze. So the rest (laughs) of the Yankees just started joining him in hot springs, Arkansas um, to get ready for the upcoming season. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Uh, what is, uh, what was the coolest thing you saw in Wales? Uh, we did a, we did a couple of mine tours, uh, cause it's like a mining area. So one was 
a slight mine that had been turned into a museum. And I, I, I don't go to many museums these days, but I was, so I was kind of museum technology kind of blew me away. So you'd go to like different, you kind of, you'd be taken down in a, like a tram down to the down, like about a mile, they said, or so a thousand meters. So about a kilometer, I guess down to where the kind of the old mine pit was. And you'd walk through different, like, I guess, caverns that had been cleared out by the mine. And then in each one, they'd have like these holograms projected of like people being like 19th century miners explaining how they mined stuff and, you know, the 1870s or whatever, what their life was like. So it was, that was a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool experience. And you get to kind of see some old caverns and there was a, there's a really clear lake in one of the caverns where like I guess natural spring water kind of accumulates. So it was a pretty cool, cool thing to take a look at. How's your summer going? How's, uh, how's fatherhood treating you? It's, it's, it's good. It's it is hard, but it's good. That's it, it's very, yeah. yeah. It's there are so many just little things that are just hard, but uh, especially early on. But it's good. He's a happy guy, so that helps. That helps a lot. Um, he had been. Uh, he's also been sleeping through the night, um, and one of the things is you notice that they'll, they will change their routine at the exact like wrong time. So last night before we are recording this podcast and we're doing this in the morning since uh, you're on UK time, but last night was the first time in like two and a half months that he did not sleep through the night. He woke up. <laughs> he woke, yeah. He woke up a couple times in the middle of the night. Um, woke up for good at about 8 a.m. And that's the first time that that's happened since, um, since he was like just a couple weeks old. Um, so yeah, so that's fun. So I'm going, I'm on, I am very, uh, hopped up on coffee right now, but, uh, yeah, for the most part, I mean, we've been, we've been very lucky. He's a happy dude and he sleeps. Um, so you can't really ask for much more. He's, he's really cool to hang out with. That's good. Have you been traveling at all this summer or staying at home with the new boy or we've, we've been to my wife's family's river cabin a couple of times. And then most of the time we're just, I mean, we're, we're not, we're definitely not staying in. Uh, he is, he's been to about eight breweries now. Uh, right. <laughs> so he's, 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 he's an adventure baby. So that's good. Yeah. All right. Uh, and college football is starting next weekend. So is that why we're recording this weekend? Cause it's the last chance before college football season starts. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> although we usually record on Sunday, so that really doesn't, uh, doesn't college football doesn't affect our schedule too much, except for when I'm trying to get back, um, trying to get back here from Blacksburg. Uh, but yeah, college football starts next week. Next week is week zero. And then the week after that is the traditional start of college football season. And that's when Virginia Tech takes the field for the first time this season. I, I guess I could say the same thing for you because this is week two of the EPL, right? Isn't, uh, is it is it kind of the same way out there? Uh, I, I guess a bit. I mean, I, I don't think I'm as football fanatic as you're a football fanatic. Uh, I'll, I'll follow it. It's, I mean, I, I think the Saints this year – are in another relegation struggle. It looks like going off their, uh, their yeah. first two games. Um, I think they, they got new ownership in two years ago and it looks like this new ownership group doesn't want to spend much money. And unfortunately, and I guess in all sports, it's ultimately how much money you want to spend 
determines about 80 or 90% what you get out of it. I watched the first half against Liverpool and they're actually exciting to watch now. And like last year where it was just park the bus for 90 minutes and try to eke out a nil nil draw. Now, at least, you know, they have possession. They're actually making an effort to, to make it exciting, exciting soccer. Yeah, no, I think it's like, they've got a new manager in, they picked him up like a lot halfway through last year. And even last season like they they definitely played better in the second half with this new manager and he's he's a lot more he's called the austrian klopp i I wouldn't say he's jurgen klopp's level but he's kind of similar similar philosophy similar similar style of play which is is nice to watch like a lot of attacking a lot of kind of high pressure force a turnover and, and uh attack and keep possession kind of style of play so you know, Liverpool's going to be tough because they're the best team in Europe. So to lose 2-1 is not the end of the world. Uh, the Burnley result was a bit disappointing, but Burnley's kind of one of those teams that just always grinds it out. But uh, yeah, it looks to me like they're going to be in that 12th to 20th spot battling those teams all year, which uh, it's more about staying up than winning anything, I think. Yep. Uh, anything else going on before we get into curling because i think i knew my season just ended and yours is starting <laughs> yeah i mean i've actually been on the ice a couple times so i went i was up uh was with my men's team we were up in preston which is one of the ranks in england one of the two rinks in england probably i think three weeks ago now at the, at the end of july we just went up for a weekend and kind of threw some stones there just for fun and we're trying some things out uh and then Two weeks after that, I went to Sterling to grab some summer ice up there. They've got the National Curling Academy that uh, it's where like all the Team GB people train. So because I'm on the England mixed team, they let us, uh, they gave us a bit of coaching. We got some coaching from some of their coaches and they gave us a weekend of ice time, which was nice to nice to do and kind of start getting ready for the world mix. So that was, uh, that was fun. And uh, I'm actually going to be, I guess I'm on the ice again next weekend in Preston for a camp. And then I'm uh, flying to the Netherlands the weekend after that for the first spiel of the year. So, Yeah, you're getting ready for Worlds, man. And that's actually not that far away. That's what, beginning of October? Yep. Uh, it's eight weeks away. Actually, just a little under eight weeks. Yeah, October 12th to 20th. But I got to be there from the tenth. So, are you? I mean, are you getting? I mean, you're getting excited, right? It's like <laughs> it's coming up. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting. It's kind of like it's a bit. Um, there's like so much stuff you got to do <laughs> that you don't even think about. Like it's just like there's a lot of little things that you don't think about normally that you have to do for something like this. Like it's a really different feel from going to say a bond spieler or something. I think because I've coached the junior team internationally, most of the stuff's kind of, you know, secondhand to me now, but some, some of it having to do for myself is a bit, you know, a bit interesting. So like we've got to do our biographies for the WCF. I had to look at my therapeutic use exemption for doping control. Uh, we got to do team photos, order team kit, uh, sort of our place to stay. Uh, thankfully, because it's in the UK, that that part's easier. But uh, it's, there's like a lot of details you got to work out for for uh, for one of these things. You've had all summer to do it. Imagine if you know you win, and then two weeks later you've got to go. 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think you know, for some of the Canadian teams, it's a tight turnaround. The the one advantage they have that we don't have is there's a professional staff at Curling Canada that has kind of probably got everything already prepped. Whereas here, it's kind of like you've got to do it yourself and pay for it yourself. So that's a little bit of a different different angle to it. All right. Uh, what so? Just one spiel in the Netherlands for the mixed team before you guys uh, go to Worlds. One spiel in the Netherlands for the mixed team, and then my men's team is we're going to Canada to play in two spiels on the Ontario Curling Tour end of September. So the first one's in Kitchener Waterloo, and the second one a week later is in Ottawa at the RCMP Club. So that'll be fun. Uh, do you want to talk about your new team now, or do you want to get into news and then uh, and then go fully into that at the end of our news segment? Uh, <laughs> either way, I, I can't I can't imagine too many people dying to know my team lineup for this year. But uh, so I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. All right, so I mean that that so the story is we've. Uh, recruited a curler from Canada named Rob Retchless, who's uh, skipped kind of on the Ontario curling scene for uh, like a number of years. So he's probably one of the top top curlers in Ontario the last few seasons. And uh, he's eligible to play for England. So uh, I guess we kind of reached out to him two years ago, just kind of through some back channels, through some of our some of our contacts in English curling who come from Ontario, kind of flagged that he might be a uh, eligible and might be interested and so there's been a bit of back and forth and uh this year kind of worked for both teams so or both for us and for him i'd say and so we're just going to give it a go and, and see what happens this season and he's i mean it's not like he's some nobody like he's played in uh ontario tankards before yeah, no, he's a good he's a good competitive curler. Yeah, it's not like it's yeah. I don't want to understell his his abilities uh, at, by any stretch of the imagination. We're really excited to to play with him and kind of give it a give it a go and see what happens here. So uh, it's it's interesting. It's I mean it's going to be a challenge too. So um, you know it's you know how hard it is to coordinate a podcast across <laughs> the Atlantic. So <laughs> coordinating a curling team across the Atlantic also has its, uh, its interesting challenges to say the least. So, uh, so basically this is a kind of, let's go play two spiels, spend the week in between getting to know each other. Um, Greg, our skip from last year went over, uh, and played in a spiel back in March. And that was kind of the, the, uh, you know, the tryout process, I guess the, and, uh, I haven't met him in person yet. It's just been, uh, one Skype call and a couple of emails back and forth. So it's, you know, that's always a bit tricky too. I think when you don't know your teammates all that well. So, I mean, a big part of this trip is going to be kind of figuring out how that, that part of it works, I think. Uh, so you're, you're coming here in the middle of September and you guys are going to play in the Kitchener Waterloo spiel and then the Moosehead spiel in Ottawa, correct? Yeah. What are, uh, I mean, what are, what are the team? I mean, you, you always, as a coach, you always talk to me about, you know, setting team goals and preparing for this stuff. So what's, what are the, what are the team goals for these two, these two spiels? Oh, I think like nothing, nothing outcome related at all. Like to be honest, to be honest, it'll be really simple things like, uh, well, I think a Rob's got to get a look at our releases. Like he's just got like it's like the biggest thing when you're a skip in terms of icing a team is 
figuring out how that stone's going to react out of different players' hands. So I imagine for him, like challenge one's going to be looking at a bunch of people he's never seen before, seeing how they throw, and then figuring that part of it out. Uh, us getting on the page with them tactically, uh, us trying to sync our weights so we're kind of using the same language and throwing kind of roughly the same same split times uh, kind of for our different takeout weights. Um, I mean, just figuring out all those processes, right? So uh, I think the advantage is that the three of us have all that are going there have all played together for a number of years now. So we've kind of got uh, a pretty good handle on each other, but then bringing in a new person at skip, they're going to have a different way they want to do it. So it's, it's kind of working all that stuff out. It's really going to be the, the big goal. And then do you know, so he is still eligible in Canada, at least until it, if you guys were to wind up winning in England um, and representing England until that moment, he's still eligible in Canada. So is he going to play with two teams this year? Is he going to play with an English team and then um, try to play down in Ontario again? Do you know what's going on there? I don't think so. I don't know. And I, I think that's it's probably a gray area in the rule book too, to be honest. Um, as I understand, so from the WCF perspective, you lose your you lose your eligibility. If you play for a country internationally, mm-hmm. you lose your eligibility to represent any other country for two full calendar years. So um yeah, I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure what the rules are in Ontario because I, I know that, like, for playing down for, like, say, the Briar, you can't go play down in Quebec and then hop over to Ontario and kind of if you yeah. get if your like play downs are a week earlier. So I'm not quite sure how that would affect that. I don't think he has a team planned for um, Ontario. It's also like English curling rules are pretty. Uh, odd in terms of their registration. So we have to sign up our team. Like the deadline for signing up for next February was actually July 15th. Oh, wow. But then you can change your team up to 48 hours before the event begins. So <laughs> it's a, it, okay. like, so like, you know, they, they, the lineup could completely change. And that, that does happen from time to time. And that's just because logistically the ECA has to rent ice and has no money. So um, they need to kind of collect the money to hold to book the ice in the summer for to kind of rent ice from a facility, and then uh, you're just kind of on hook for the money. But uh, so like things could still change in kind of m- multiple directions. But that's the plan right now. So we'll see how that plays out. Do we do we know if either of these spiels are going to be streamed on YouTube, or if you guys are going to be able to like set up a set up an iPhone to, to stream this stuff? Or are we going to be able to watch you guys play? Uh, well, English is always streamed. So I think he watches so what, okay. sometimes. I'm t- dubious, <laughs> dubious quality English, English nationals is available on YouTube from the Dumfries feed. Um, you know, some, some games, well, the Greg Dunn broken broom game from a few years ago. <laughs> That's like 500 points. <laughs> I'm not sure if people know that story, but uh, our skip uh, smashed his broom after missing a shot in uh, like most three seasons ago. <laughs> and then, because it was the new, because because it was the new WCF brush pad rules, he had to finish the game skipping with a broom uh, without a brush head. <laughs> so 
We did not win that game, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of gone down in English curling war. And uh, if you if you go Google it, it's got it's the most watched English curling game on the Dumfries YouTube channel. So, <laughs> but we but we don't anyway. know about we don't know about the Kitchener Waterloo Fall Classic or the Moosehead Fall Open. I, my hunch is a lot of these places are now, right? Like. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is. I don't know. Maybe someone out there can let us know if they're from either of those ranks. Uh, I'm not techy enough to figure out how to do a live stream while I'm curling, so uh, I can't do it. But well, the Game of Stones guys are in Ottawa. Have we asked them if they'll come and like stream your games for that spiel? Uh, I messaged them for saying let's get a beer. I think it might be a step up in terms of asking. <laughs> Do you want to be the TV crew for? <laughs> I'll be the one. Who, I'll be the one who asks. English team. <laughs> You'll be the one who asks. I'll be the one who All asks. Right. Will you be paying for their their beer if they do that? Do, do, do you know how much baby formula costs, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe we'll work something out. Maybe. Uh, uh, we'll see. I can't. I, I think. I think. Well, I'm pretty sure you and Mark know are like very interested in how this goes. I can't see there's that much demand for um, <laughs> live streaming Team Retchless this season. But uh, I'll live tweet it. <laughs> you'll, you'll what? I'll live tweet it. You'll live tweet it. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, so yeah so the season's the season's here obviously as you're getting ready for it um and we've as we if you want to get into some curling news um actual uh competitive games have been played um there's this new the new wct um section of the wct tour that's in japan uh has already had a couple of Pretty big uh, tournaments, which makes sense because they're the PACCs are so early. Those are in early November, so it kind of makes sense that things there get started in August, just so that they've got a couple of months to get ready for uh, PACCs. In fact, um, we've also already had the Korean Curling Championships, which were way back in July, and is kind of an upset. Uh, Team Gim wound up winning. Uh, neither of the neither of the Team Kim's uh, will be representing Korea in any of the championships this year. Uh, team uh, Gim Unchi uh, pulled the upset. They beat Kim Min Ji, which was last year's Korean champion and uh, basically the junior team. Uh, beat them in the final. Ki- team uh, Kim Un Jung, which is better known as the Garlic Girls, they were playing without Kim Un Jung, who's still on maternity leave, but she will be back, I think, in the next couple weeks. I think that they are scheduled to play in one of the early Oakville spiels with uh, Kim Un Jung, but uh, they finished third in Korea. Uh, see, it looks like we're going to see three Korean teams out on tour this year, as we've seen. Uh, both Team Kim's, uh, they appear on the teams list for some of these spiels if you look on uh, the World Curling Tours website, which is great to see. Um, but yeah, pretty big upset there in Korea. They're a, this, team, this Team Gim, they're a team that's had pretty solid results in Tier 2 events in North America, but 
Most curling fans are probably unaware of them. Obviously, this is their big breakthrough, and it's a chance to make a name for themselves. Uh, looks like we'll see the other two teams on tour as well. And uh, as Hans Fraunlaub uh, from New Zealand, who calls a lot of the WCF games on their YouTube feed, said to us on Twitter, he said, one of the quiet success stories in international curling is how deep Korea has become on the women's side. And Jonathan, we've talked about the depth of women's curling in Japan a lot on this podcast, but Korea has a chance to show its depth this season uh, as Team Gim represents them uh, on the international stage, including at PACCs uh, in early November in China. Yeah, I think it's interesting they do their championship so early and then it determines everything for the whole season. Uh, I'm curious like what the thinking behind that is. So does that mean that team gets a whole bunch of funding as well? Or do you know what happens there? I, or I think so. I think that's I think I I think I can't speak for certain, but I think that the reason they do it so early is so that they can have their champion, give them the funding, get them in Give them the because I mean Korean curling is relatively new to the grander stage. Obviously, the the big breakthrough was the Garlic Girls at the Olympics. Um, but the, you know it, they're probably one of the federations that only has enough funding to really focus on one team. So that's probably why they do this: is have your champion get them as much world-class competition as possible to get them prepared for PACCs and then hopefully uh, world championships. My guess is that's why they do it that way. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I assume that uh, uh, Kim Min-ji is going to be still the junior representative this year because they've still got another two years of juniors left, I think. At least one more year of juniors left. You'd assume so. Um, but I also, I also imagine that they have to win – um, a junior playdown, I'd guess. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see how that plays out. Um, yeah, but it's, it's good to see. I think, uh, I think the rise of the, this, the Asia Pacific region, uh, kind of heading into China, into the Beijing 2022 is probably the, I mean, I would, it's been going on now for a while, so we shouldn't be all that shocked, but it's, it seems like there's real growth there. Uh, and Korea has kind of really come on to to join China and Japan as as uh, a third kind of equal power in that region. I'd say. In the the WCT sponsoring or including a bunch of new events as part of their as part of their points, I think is going to help even further. And you know, the two events that the two bigger events that we saw, and we saw some Canadian teams go over to to get points in these events. Uh, the, the Hokkaido bank curling classic, um, on the men's side team Matsumura, which was Japan's representative at worlds last year, finished first, uh, beating Scott McDonald in the final, uh, Kirk Myers rank actually went over there and finished third and a team from Korea team, uh, Kim Su Hayek finished fourth. Um, other interesting results from that tournament gunner went three and one, but, missed out on the playoffs on DSC and Yusuke Morizumi is back in competitive curling. He missed last year. His team dissolved right before the beginning of the season. So he wound up coaching last year, but he is back 
He's playing with his brother as well as Masaki Iwe from the Goeoki team joined this team. So in their first big tournament as a team, they went one in three. Uh, and then they came back the next week at the Advix Cup and they won it. So event number two for this new team, they wind up winning. Uh, they beat Team Park from Korea in the final. Uh, team Zoe from China finished third and Matsumura finished fourth. Gunner went two and two in that event. Uh, on the women's side, uh, in the final, team uh, Zheng Yailun from China won the Hokkaido Bank Classic, beating Team Fujisawa, which is a team that represented Japan at the last Olympics. Uh, team Meijie, also from China, they were the 2019 World's Representative, finished third, and Team Tracy Flurry went over there and finished fourth. Um, another one of the bigger Japan teams, Team Yoshimura, went three and one and missed out on the playoffs on Draw Shot Challenge. Um, what was also interesting was the very next week they went three and one again and missed out on playoffs because of Draw Shot Challenge. So, two good weeks, but no playoff games for Team Yoshimura because of Draw Shot Challenge. Um, and Go then back and on, practice those draws. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it all, well, it's, it's big because they they went six and two overall, but they missed out on a whole lot of points. And I think I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I think that Japan's new system, I believe their PACC representative is now is it it's now partially tied to your order of merit standing. So that's huge for them because they're one of the better teams there, but obviously missed out on a slew of points by not making it into the playoff rounds for either of these two events. Um, Fujisawa wound up winning the Advix Cup on the women's side, beating uh, Team May. Uh, team Jang, from, also from China, finished third. And Team Nakajima, who was last year's world's representative for Japan, finished fourth. So... Um, you know, things getting started early over there uh, in in the Pacific Asia region. They're really starting to, to ramp up this upcoming week um, here in North America, including uh, in the U.S. next week you have uh, Curling Night in America is going to be uh, filmed in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is pretty cool. It's, it's getting... Um, getting top flight curling in um, non-traditional parts of North America. Yeah. And I think it's good to get it. I mean, nothing against having it in the twin cities as it has been for, I think since it was in like its inception, but it, exactly as you said, good to get into a new region and uh, it's a new rink there too. I think how, how long has the rink been open in Raleigh? Way before I got to this region. So it's probably, my guess would be six years old, maybe. Wow. For the, okay, for the so dedicated. a while now. I mean, yeah. shoot. And I've, I've, been here, yeah. I've been here over three years now, <laughs> and it feels like it was yeah. yesterday that I moved out here. Yeah, so it may, it's good, but it's still good to get, as you said, into this yep. new, like, southeastern U.S. has seen a lot mm-hmm. of growth in both the arena and and now the dedicated uh, curling uh curling ranks so that's good to see and good to get an event like that into a new area and you're gonna go aren't you i am i'm gonna go um as a media representative uh and try to get some interviews for this here podcast um hopefully 
hopefully go down there on Saturday of next week and try to talk to some people. Uh, Team Italy will be there. Team Japan will be there. And Team China will also be there. So hopefully we'll be able to get some interviews for the old podcast while I'm there. All right. Good luck. Uh, Going back to your journalism roots. Yeah, uh, I can now... I I would say that this is on par with covering the NBA finals as far as my journalism career goes. This is, this is as good as interviewing, uh, LeBron James. Honestly, I think it'll be just as fun. Like I, like I enjoy this stuff, you know, this is like, you know, I I geek out over this stuff. Um, you know, covering, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I geek out over curling versus the next guy, but I'm kind of like, so in your mind, Schuster's as big a get as LeBron James. All right, I don't know about that. I mean, although they, <laughs> they have both won, hey, they've both won Olympic gold medals. That is true. That is true. So I hope you get, I hope you get Schuster. I hope you get all the, and I, all the gets. And I tell you what, I probably know more about curling than I do the NBA. <laughs> That's true. Probably, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you actually have freakish sports knowledge about just about every sport. My my one great accomplishment this summer is I found a sport that Ryan knows nothing about, and then I proceeded to get drunk and tweet and then like text message you all these sporting all these fun facts about this sport. That was the random motorcycle thing, right? Yeah, it was Speedway. So I was up. Uh, practicing with Stu, uh, Stu Brand, who's on the mixed team, and he's his wife is from Poland, and Speedway is like a Northern European motorcycle race thing, and it's actually kind of fun to watch. It's it's uh, it's single gear bikes without brakes, and they do four laps of a dirt track, and then it's they basically keep running races all night long. So it's like a three hour race meet, and then by the end you whittle the field down to four four bikes out of a field of 20. Uh, so anyway, Ryan had never heard of Speedway, which never even heard freaked of me out. <laughs> it freaks me out because like when curling Canada tweeted a picture of like, what is this? Ryan right away is it's this, it's this ice hockey rink in, what was it? Prince George or Prince Rupert or yeah, it was Prince George. And they, they, you could tell because you knew the logo right off the bat of like the, the, the kind of major junior hockey team that plays there or something. Yeah. Which I mean isn't. And you could probably name the starting. Lineup. I mean, there were. I mean, a lot of people in Canada knew what that logo was. Knew that it was the Prince. I think it's the. I think they're the Cougars, Prince George Cougars. I'm trying to think. Like, yeah, you you do have very weird, freakish sports knowledge. I'll just like say something, and you'll be like, "Oh yeah, but this guy played for that team in 1973." And anyway, if there's ever a pub quiz, you uh, want yeah. Ryan on your team for the sports knowledge is what I gotta say. True. Anyway, I, st- I do. So, although uh, it, it's sad, it's, it's sad. I can tell you all that stuff, but I also have to check the calendar to make sure that I have the date correct for my mom's birthday. <laughs> well, you're you're using up all that the brain space that should have gone to your mom on important things, like minor this league true. ballparks, like minor league ball, yeah, minor league ballparks and uh, rinks. Um, also, uh, related um, the rink that. Well, it's the same. Well, not the same, not the same sheet of ice, but the same um, larger facility in Cedar Rapids that hosted the um, 
the arena curling championship that I went to is going to want is going to host a uh, the U.S. championships next year or uh, in twenty oh, yeah twenty twenty one yeah so yeah again getting into a you know Eastern Iowa is not exactly a curling hotbed but uh, great to see the U.S. branching out and taking um, that tournament to uh, to up and coming. Um, up and coming locations. Hopefully they'll bring it to Raleigh. That'd be that, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully curling night in America goes so well that they bring us nationals to Raleigh. That'd be cool for me. Cause I know they went, they went to Jacksonville that one year. Yeah. I think actually Cedar Rapids is probably a sneaky good pick. Cause it's, yeah. it's like a, it's a short day drive from, from Minnesota, Wisconsin and Chicago, right. Which mm-hmm. all do have kind of strong curling history. Yep. Plus a lot of those kind of arena clubs, like Oklahoma and Texas and et cetera. It's also kind of maybe a little bit of a longer day drive, but still kind of gettable for a lot of basically middle American arena clubs, which are kind of, you know, where a lot of the growth has been over the last few years. So has a good chance to do well, I think. And it's a good size rink for it too. It's a little bigger. Yeah. It's I think the last one, uh, the last one in Kalamazoo was you only had uh, seating, I think, on one side. This one, it's uh, it's a full bowl, but it's uh, but it's a, a smaller arena. That I but I think they can pack it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, how how many seats are we talking? Oh, I'd have to Google exactly how much, but I want to say it's like five five thousand. But you can curtain off you can curtain off the two ends and make it look a lot smaller than that. But it's a full, it's, yeah, it's a full bowl, single level bowl, um, lots of standing room behind the seats. It's an all, uh, it's all seat backs. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any bleachers if I remember, because we did all, we, we did our big uh, pre-event team meeting in the bowl of this arena for the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders, uh, which I bought a Cedar Rapids Rough Riders hat while I was at that at that event, because the logo, the logo is really cool. The logo is like this stylized, um, stylized Teddy Roosevelt, since they're the ro- they're the Rough Riders. Oh, I'm way off. It seats uh, 3,800. Oh, that's a good size, I think. Yeah, that's a really good size. Yeah, because even I, I think 1,500 is like for sure. So like, even if it's half full, right? And then it's, it's got a chance if they if they sell well and promote well to do better than that, but. And they can, yeah, yeah, like I said, they can curtain off the two ends and, or make that media seating and make it look even fuller. Yeah, media seating. I, I would like to see more events steal that Pinty's Pub thing that they do on the slams. Yeah. Like that. I think that's, like, honestly, if you're like, if me as a curling fan going to an event, I think that would be way, that's probably way more fun than sitting up in the stands. But that's just me. That looks like a way more uh, fun experience. The other bit of news, which will get us into the main thing that you told me that you wanted to talk about on this podcast is the WCF World Curling Congress is coming up uh, very soon. And I believe they are going to vote on switching from 10 ins to eight. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, everything I have is like second or third hand gossip. Uh, so take this with many grains of salt. But my understanding is one, the WCF doesn't like to change the rule book 
mid-cycle. They want as consistent a rule book as possible for an entire Olympic cycle. So probably they're looking at changing the events from eight to 10 ends uh, for the next Olympic cycle. So we probably still have a couple of years left of, of 10 end play. But my understanding is it's pretty much going to go to to eight ends. I don't, I, I think there's very little, uh, pushback from kind of people in the know and in power for kind of keeping the 10 end format. So it's probably the way we're going to go with that. I know curling news thinks that it's going to eight ends. They did a, they had a, uh, a big headline in one of the most recent, um, curling news editions that said goodbye 10 ends. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they also are plugged in. So I think that's kind of part of it too. It's just me talking to people who, uh, over here who are kind of tied into the WCF a bit. So uh, nothing official, but I think that most of the thinking goes that way. Um, I think it's primarily driven by TV, to be honest, oh, yeah. right? That the, the 10 ends is too long. Um, and the stats, you know, kind of bear it out. Um, I'm not sure if you know the curl, the curl with math blog. That's Kevin Palmer, who also does the... He does the Curling Legends podcast. So he's been doing a lot of kind of curling analytics stuff for a good 15 years now. And uh, he wrote a book, I think about 2010, which I kind of recommend. It's an ebook called, I think it's Endgame is the name of it, the, that. But he was looking at win expectancy uh, per end, depending on your situation. So he, he kind of developed that stat for that book. And one of the arguments he made even back then was, there's actually no difference or virtually no difference between um, an eight end game being tied with hammer and a 10 end game being tied with hammer in terms of your win expectancy. So there, it doesn't really affect the outcome was, was kind of his, his point. And I think that, that a lot of the, a lot of the argument for going from 10 to eight is basically that the numbers back that up. I think a lot of the curling traditionalists, the ones who, back the 10 end format say that well 10 end game lets you uh lets you come back if you have a, a rough start at the beginning right yep. so that's i think that's where the debate kind of sits but uh yeah so that's that's the thoughts on it what do you think are you a 10 end guy or are you a, an eight end guy i'm probably an eight end guy and i mainly for tv it's 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 tough to carve out three and a half hours to watch a 10 end curling game. Um, as from a player standpoint, I have never played a 10 in game, so I can't um, give an opinion one way or the other as a player, as someone who watches a lot of curling on TV, um, the two, the eight in games being done in two hours. I mean, that's, that's great. It's partially why I kind of got into watching European uh, soccer is in two hours. It's done. Uh, there's no, you know, unless it's the World Cup and they go into extra time, like you are done, you you can sit down and two hours later the event is done and you can move on with whatever else you were going to do. Um, so it helps now that I've gotten old and I'm incapable of sleeping past seven thirty in the morning. Um, it helps because I get up at seven thirty and I can watch uh, watch some random EPL game and then go on with my day while I'm eating while I'm eating breakfast. Uh, but it's the same way. It's the same way with curling too. You know, the, the, the European events that are on YouTube, I can get up in the morning, uh, watch a game on, on YouTube. That's on my, on my television, uh, eat my breakfast and be done, um, before anyone else is even awake. Yeah. So 
<laughs> it does work. I mean, yeah, I'd say 95% of the games I play in a season are 8N2. Um, mixed is 8Ns. Uh, mixed doubles is 8Ns. Uh, junior Bs is actually 8Ns. They only go to 10Ns when they get to the, the World A's. So uh, a lot of junior curling is still only 8Ns. I think in Canada, it's still 10Ns, but a lot of countries keep it at eight, the 8N format too. So it's not many games that are 8 versus 10Ns. Um, so I did though, so as a thought experiment, I just was kind of like, how would curling history be different? <laughs> <laughs> so this may not be a case of like an argument for keeping it 10 ends, but it was more just like, okay, cause the argument for the math people is it doesn't matter, but actually certain kind of epic games, I, was, I just kind of went through Canadian finals just cause that's kind of where my, my strongest, uh, curling history is uh, and kind of comparing. And so what I looked at was the seventh end score line, right? So what was the score like in the seventh end? And then how did the game change over the, those last three ends? So my argument's not what's it at eight versus what's it at 10? Cause the, the pushbacks obviously um, well, they would have played the end game differently in those scenarios. And that's true. So at the seventh end, What's the situation, and was it really different? Those extra four ends that 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 kind of the effect of a ten end game because you obviously play the last end differently. Um, so, do you want to know what I've dug up, Ryan? Yes, um, you're going to tell me anyway. Are, are you curious? I'm going to tell you anyway. So, <laughs> so for me, curling bookery history, I think the best final of the 21st century. Is the 2004 Briar Final? Do you, you? This is way before you got into curling. So, do you know this final? Yeah, I've 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 watched it on YouTube. Um, it is in addition to Schuster's run at the Olympics. I think that it is the other curling event that really deserves uh, its own 30 for 30 uh, on the on ESPN. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would I would agree with you there. Yeah, and so I didn't realize how crazy. So this is the Dacey Furby final from two thousand four, and Mark Dacey, it's the one the one win that broke up the Furby Four's run in the early two thousand. So if Dacey had lost this game, the Furby Four would have won five Briars in a row, and Dacey kind of snuck in there and, and broke it up. So <clears throat> the game was actually even wilder on the scoreline than I remember <laughs> from my brain. So after the seventh end, Furby was leading Dacey. Eight to four, right? And for and Dacey ends up winning that ten nine. So there's no way Dacey wins that under the eight end format, right? The Furby four with a four point lead, even without Hammer, aren't coughing up a four bagger. Dacey scored three in the eighth, then forced Furby in the ninth, then scored three in the tenth to win ten nine. So he scored six points over the last three ends to win that game. Uh, so that was kind of just an absolutely crazy. Uh, crazy, uh, crazy game there. So, and if, uh, if, that, if that game is eight ends, uh, Marcel Rock does not threaten to beat up a fan in the tenth end. Yeah, no, it was th- that whole game. It's it's on YouTube. Like you said, <laughs> it's like if you, if you actually have three and a half hours in the summer and you're missing your curling, go go get that game off YouTube. Get a beer. It's even if you know how it ends. It's like from start to finish. It's a fantastic game. So. The win breaks up the Furby 4 dominant win streak. They would have won five in a row. And if you don't have those extra two ends, you know, history is a bit different there, I well, think. Did you did you go and look at the uh, 
the ninth and tenth ends for the other games that that Furby won? Like, did they have any comebacks? Like, are we sure that it would have been five in a row if if it was eight ends uh, in the? That is a. I have to confess, I was not that systematic. Aha. <laughs> um, that is fair. I'll, I'll, I'll I will go and do some more research. <laughs> I'll revise and resubmit this piece. Um, no, that's true. This is no, where my method is where my method was where the were crazy. Where the professor. This is where Professor Havercroft would write in red on my research paper. Uh, needs more needs more sourcing. <laughs> yeah, in in the academic world, we call it being reviewer tued. So you, when you go under peer review, for some reason, the second reviewer is always the mean one. So <laughs> they're the one who asks you to do a whole bunch of crazy stuff. So I've been reviewer tued by yes by Ryan. Uh, <laughs> all right, my method was simply: what are some games in the twenty first century? So I, my cutoff point was two thousand, and I was thinking mostly Canadian finals that had wild outcomes uh so then i went to this year the scotties 2019 scotties right so holman leads carry five four after seven ends with hammer so this one's interesting right because chelsea carry ends up winning uh in the 10th end or the extra end this year no 10th end right yeah extra end okay so this year carry wins eight six in an extra end after the seventh end, Carey is trailing Holman 5-4, and Holman has Hammer. So it's like, this one's kind of a bit more debatable, I'd say, right? Because Holman leading, car, le- leading Carey 6-5 after, after – sorry, 5-4 after seven ends with Hammer. And Holman also leads Carey 6-5 after nine ends with Hammer and loses 8-6. So that's that's a bit more debatable, right? So it's potential that uh, Holman ends up choking in 8, just like she did in 10-11. But in this one, she actually scored in 8th end with the hammer, scored her 1, and, and would have won the game if you just kind of assume the exact same score line. So there's an argument to be made there that the extra time kind of created more opportunities for Carey to kind of claw back into that game. So it's kind of an interesting question, right? Would Holman have missed the draw in eight the same way she missed the draw in the extra end in order to to win the Scotties? Or does the extra time give Carey the chance to kind of perhaps put more pressure on Holman? And kind of my read of that game was that what got in Holman's head was the fact she couldn't quite put Carey away and it kind of started weighing on that team kind of more and more. So I'm wondering if they're the advantage of more time to frustrate Holman's kind of what got Carey over the top. What do you think about that one, Ryan? Uh, I'd probably agree with that. Cause if you look at it after four, in, like if this is an eight in game uh, after four ends at the fourth end break, if there had been a fourth end break, uh, it would, it was five, uh, one Holman. And at that point being up five, one after four with only four ends to play, she's probably hitting everything in sight instead of trying to draw. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, I think, perhaps a little bit of a different one. Now, we can flip it around, I think, because for Holman, I think 2018 is an interesting case where she got the advantage of uh, the extra ends, right? Because Holman wins that one 8-6 to six in an extra end against Englet, but they were trailing 4-3, to three, but with the hammer after 7, whereas they were leading by 2 without the hammer after the ninth. 
right? So mm-hmm. this one, if you kind of go by basic curling analytics, they would have had a 42% chance of winning the game in an eight-end format, down one with hammer and one end to go, right? Because, it, you know, it's possible they could have scored a two. Certainly, like, you know, if, if any team's going to do that in that situation, I put my money on the Holman squad. But, you know, the, the standard situation there is that the team without hammer – uh, forces and then kind of gets one in the extra end, right? So England might have had a better shot in that scenario than in the ninth end scenario, right? So that one probably that one might be a bit different. England might have been able to squeak that one out in uh, the eight end format. What do you think? Sold or not? It's not sold. I don't remember that final as well because that was one that I did not get get to see. I forget what on earth I was doing, but I would I did not get to see that final. Um, I think, I, yeah, I think the most, the more interesting one is the, is arguing the Kerry Homan game, just because in eight in game, I mean, it, the strategy completely changes um, after the fourth, when you're up, up by four after the fourth end at that, at that, at what would have been a fourth end break. It changes what the strategy would have been the rest of the way. Um with this one, I believe it was kind of that one was tighter, right? That was tighter almost all the way through. Whereas the the game against Kerry, they the game against Kerry, they they streaked out to a big lead, and Kerry just kind of chipped away, chipped away. Where ten ends is the only really the only way that you can do that. Although, I mean, I I kind of look at it from there's a couple different perspectives on this. One is, I mean, how many sports, and I understand that the ninth and the 10th are the, the championship ends. They're, they're what differentiates, um, you know, the run of the mill bond spiel from these, these tournaments that have something really significant on the line, but how many sports change the length of their games based on what the event is. There probably aren't a whole lot of sports that do that. Like in golf, you're not playing, you're not playing 14 holes at the Buick open and then 18 holes at the masters. Um, the other way that I look at it is I think that the five rock rule has kind of changed. Like the five rock rule was crazy last year. Um, so I don't think eight ends, I think you're still going to have ways to get back into the game because of the five rock rule. Whereas, you know, a lot of teams, when they get hammer, they're going to play for their blank and then play for their deuce and two. Um, so you're all of a sudden you're up two with six ends to go. You have a really good mathematical chance of winning that game. It's not probably as decisive now with five rock as it was before that. All right. So Ryan, next one is 2015 Briar final. Remember this Briar? Yeah. Right. Where I Pat watched Simmons... it. Uh, I was I was in a bar watching it on my phone. In All right. Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pat Simmons, Brad Jacobs, where Simmons comes on midweek, takes over the skipping duties from Johnny Moe. Jacobs is tied two two after the seventh end. And Jacobs has the hammer heading into eight. And so this one had a totally wild finish, right? So in eight, Jacobs is forced to one 
which if it's an eight end game, Jacobs wins, right? And given so maybe, the solid Jacobs maybe, team tied with Hammer. So maybe Jacobs draw does it has a cold draw to the side of the lid to win. Maybe he does, right? So then so then so then Jacobs is up three two. Then Simmons scored three and nine. And Jacobs answered with two and ten. And then Simmons did the draw and the extra. So this one's like a classic case of actually Simmons winning in the ten ends because he's got a bit more time to manipulate the hammer situation to get the mm-hmm. to get hammer last, so to speak, right? So I don't think if you actually look at the first part of the game, it was a total snore fest, right? It was it's a lot of a uh, lot of blank ends. Jacobs makes a really good shot to get his deuce, and it, and and basically Jacobs had manipulated the game through the first seven ends to set up hammer for him in even ends, but then Simmons kind of grabs it back in the last three ends there. So by uh, scoring three and think, well by scoring three and by putting up a really crooked number in nine. Yeah, that three kind of changes the game, right? And then Jacobs is able to come back and get a deuce in, in 10 to force the extra, but Simmons still has hammer in the extra. So Simmons really just came alive in the last three ends there. So that's that's the difference there. And so, again, it's a case of not – it's a classic case of not having – if you have an eight ends, not having the time to kind of produce that that result. And then uh, I think – I mean, I think everyone would agree the biggest game-winning shot – of the 21st century, at least. And it's kind of up there, maybe with the Hackner double uh, and the Sandra Schmirler in off at the Olympic trials is probably the kind of most famous curling shot of all time is the Jen Jones in off to win the 2005 mm-hmm. Scotty. So you remember that one, obviously. I did. I have seen it on YouTube. Yes. You've seen it on YouTube. That was a shot for four to win it. Uh, she won it eight, six Going back and looking at the stat line for that game, Jen Hanna's team was all over the Jones rank for the first like six ends, right? After six, it's Jen Hanna leading five to two. Jones is forced in seven. So so Hanna's leading five, three with Hammer going into eight, right? And then it's Jones is able to steal an eight, steal one and eight, force Hanna in nine, and then kind of set up the big end in 10. But again, under the kind of hammer situation, Hannah would have been in a really favorable situation at eight. It's really only because Jones had those extra ends that she even had a shot to set up the the greatest shot. Kind of, in, well, at least in con- contemporary curling history, let's put it that way. So, curling history is really different if you kind of if you take away the ten ends from the the eight ends. Now, obviously, you're still going to have dramatic finishes in eight end games, but it's kind of interesting to think that a lot of the classic moments. Uh, were products of teams having more time to manipulate a comeback is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I and that is the main argument for ten ends is you the, those ninth and ten the the ninth and the tenth really do separate separate the teams uh, when you're talking about Briars and World Championships and Olympics. Um, the the positives are all for the people watching at home, really. Um, for the for the people on the ice, I imagine you would want you would want more time to come back. But if you're a team that typically um, plays well at the beginning of a game, obviously you're going to prefer eight ends to to ten. Yeah, I think that's that's the point, right? If you're playing a ten end game, you have eighty shots and eighty strategic decisions, and so. 
you know, the more times in any competitive environment you give a team more opportunities to execute, the the greater the likelihood the stronger team is going to triumph in the end, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, cutting it down to sixty four, which is basically what an eight end game is, I think is going to make it more unpredictable, probably more upsets, and you kind of pair that with the five rock, and I think it's going to make it a better spectacle, uh, perhaps. Uh, but I think the two things you're going to miss are like the stronger team triumphing in the end and, uh, kind of, well, there'll be more upsets is probably the better way to put it. And there's less time for a team to really claw back that I actually think one of the weird effects is you might have more blowout six end Briars and Scotties and world championship finals. Right. Cause if a team gets a lead after six, then it's a lot easier to kind of put the game away. Whereas if you're in a 10 end game, you do have those extra four ends to, to kind of pull off the comeback. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd buy that. Cause you after six, I mean, what's a, what's a score that you're shaking after six. If you're, if you're in an eight end game, what's a score that you're typically handshakes after six in a competitive event. Uh, in a competitive event, probably down four. Yeah, but I don't think hammer. you're. I think you're. I think the games are going to be closer because there's less. There's less time. Obviously, you're going to. I think that in ten end games, you're usually shaking after seven or eight, and it's clear that you're just getting dominated. I think if if it's eight, since it's a more condensed game. Unless it's two te- if the two teams are equally matched, you're probably getting less handshakes. You're probably getting more games that that see their way to the finish, especially in the five rock rule. Uh, maybe I, I I actually think there'll be more blowouts. I'm, I'm gonna that will, that's something we'll have to kind of watch. But there definitely are more blowouts on tour if you watch that. Now, part of it's that the WCF rules and the curling Canada rules compel you to play a certain number of games but mm-hmm. if you go kind of watch your and part of it's also is like skill deferential right Some, sometimes you're playing in spiels and there's you know slam teams playing teams you know significantly further down the, the ranking so there can be blowouts that way but if you kind of just go watch your average even slam right even the round robins of the slams there's a lot of games that are just like bam over and over and four <laughs> right because yeah. one team gets a big lead and then the other team's like there's no point there's not enough time to come back that's it uh, and I think the shorter game kind of forces the decisions earlier. So I think that'll be kind of an interesting side effect that perhaps isn't being taken into account. Anyway. But is that going to help Is that going to help teams in a longer event? Because you're shaking after four as opposed to playing, playing eight ends and then being down big after eight and shaking. You know, are you, you know, if you're down six, one after four and shaking, isn't that going to help you in the long run in a longer event in terms of it just yeah, taking, think, taking the yeah. toll on you? Yeah. If, if you kind of, if I had to vote, I probably would, it would be a close vote. Like I'm not going to die. Like the 10 ends is not a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's, I, I think it's not the biggest problem facing curling. And I do think the stronger arguments for going from 10 to eight are, um, yeah, this, the number of ends you have to play. It becomes a total drag on a body having to play 10, 10 to 12, 10 end games in a major championship over the course of the week. So just cutting back, you know, two ends over 10 to 12 to 14 game tournaments, saving you two to three games of sweeping if you're a front end player. Um, so that's kind of a significant savings. I think modern ice conditions, even with the best ice makers in the world, 
have a really hard time holding up for two nine-minute practice sessions plus 10 to 11 ends of, of curling. Like even on TV, you know, with the best ice makers in the world, with kind of all the perfect conditions, most championships, you'll note that teams are talking about the ice fudging in, in 9-10, right? So ice does ice definitely yeah. wears down too. Uh, the TV factor definitely matters. I, th- I think the other thing, if 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 time's really an issue, the one thing that baffles me is the fourth end break or the fifth end break. <laughs> like, like you long, know, though. it's really just enough time for them to yeah. to pebble again. It's re- it's really not well, that long. Only pebble from the hack to it's a five minute break, right? So that adds that adds a bit, right? It, I think it was kind of snuck in by CBC originally to get more advertising time in because it's it's not really done under any other circumstances. Uh, I I think there might be other ways to to modify the coaching interaction time if that's the big concern, uh, then, um, then kind of building in a little halftime break. That's a, that's another place they could save time. I'd say, um, I guess before we head out, I guess my last question about this is, uh, Jonathan, uh, you're an old guy. What was it like when they switched from 12 to 10 ends? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I'm not that old, but and we did used to play more 10 end games in the 90s. Like there were like these branch competitions, which uh, were kind of like club competitive stuff that was held in in kind of eastern Ontario and Quebec. Back, I don't even know if it's still going these days, but it'd be like you know double rink competitions and a lot of stuff that that had like a strong history and you'd have to play 10 ends in that and in our club championship they'd also play 10 ends for the the championships like each of the league winners would enter a little tournament at the end of the year and that would be 10 ends too so 10 ends used to be a lot more common um you know i don't really i i kind of i do like playing a 10 end game i just kind of like that it's it's different it it kind of adds a little bit of extra spice to the to the event if I'm playing in one that's a 10 ender event, but it's not, it's not a, like I said, it's not like, it's not the end of the world. Uh, if we kind of lose those extra two ends. All right. So yeah, we're, we'll see if it becomes official and they go to eight ends, uh, here beginning of September when the WCF meets, um, Jonathan, are you sad that you're not making it to Cancun for this WCF Congress? Uh, no, <laughs> you like, because you don't no, want to go to the WCF Congress, or because uh, you don't I, want to go to Cancun. I was on, I was on the USCA board for three years, and I, I I like the experience, but honestly, I mean, yeah, I guess Cancun's nice, but it's a lot of sitting around in boardrooms all day uh, arguing about curling stuff, and I'd rather be playing. So right. <laughs> I don't, right. you know, yeah. So this uh, this is our second full season doing this podcast. So we're going to look to do some different things this year now that we've kind of figured out uh, what our niche is and what we like doing with this podcast. So you're, you're going to hear us talk a lot more strategy. You're going to hear us talk a lot more about club building. And Jonathan's, uh, you're finally going to do some some blog posts for, for rocksacrossthepond.com, right? Yeah. So yeah. So we've built a website over the summer. Uh, rocksacrossthepond.com, as Ryan says, go check it out. That's so far. It's populated only with our podcasts. But 
I did a few blog posts last year when we were kind of getting going, and we sent a tweet out, tweet poll um, a couple of weeks ago. I just got kind of asking our followers on Twitter what what they want to hear more of. And so the feedback we got from that is they wanted us to talk more about strategy and more about club growth and development. So we're going to try a few blog posts there. Uh, I've drafted a few, and I think I think the idea is we'll kind of maybe once every week or every other week we'll put something up there. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it a bit on the podcast, but it's also just up there for for you to kind of uh, read from. And if you give us your feedback, I guess is the the first key. Like just let us know through Twitter or any of the social media accounts what you think, and then if you have questions or comments on it, we'd like to hear that too, and we'll kind of play around with it over the season and. Uh, see where we go from there. So the strategy one, I'm going to try and do it like sequentially. So the early blog posts are take are just basically drawing from some of the strategy talks I give to the juniors that I coach. Uh, so if you're a bit more advanced, probably what we're saying is pretty basic in the first couple of blog posts. But my hope is that by the time we get to mid-season, I've kind of covered the basic concepts. We can maybe then look at, at interesting game situations that come up throughout the season. Or if you want to send us a situation that came up in your league night, we're happy to kind of tear that down. Or Ryan will send me something, or maybe I'll post something that comes up that's interesting. But we'll we'll play around with that this year, I think. And uh, in addition to all that, uh, Mark Steinwax from the curling club in Nashville, Tennessee is going to do some posts about just kind of the things that are important for, for arena curling clubs. He's, uh, he's already written one that he has sent to us and we'll get that posted as soon as we can. But yeah, a completely different take on club building and what, what makes a, what makes a solid curling club from an organizational, uh, standpoint. Um, but yeah, looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to hearing about your adventures in Ontario and then your adventures at uh, at World Mix. That's going to be great, man. Yeah, that'll be fun too. So hopefully I'll, I'll meet a bunch of people there too and maybe maybe uh, turn them into guests. We'll see. Uh, and uh, you can interview me afterwards and see what I thought about the whole thing. So that'll be an interesting experience too. Yep, good deal. Um so yeah, uh, send us any topics uh, for our professor of Peel segments to us. The ways you can get a hold of us are plenty. You can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. Those reviews uh, help us get found. Uh, the other way that we can be found, and really it's the biggest compliment that we can receive, it's when you tell your friend that you enjoyed the podcast or tell them to give us a listen. We really appreciate all of you that have done that. So uh, you can find back episodes on rocksacrossthepond.com, and that's where you will find Jonathan's blog posts. So look forward to looking forward to talking to you again real soon, and uh, happy curling season, everyone.